All right, we'll pick up in verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as, and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him, that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a... Um, in these chapters here, in chapter 13, as you go into the end of the section, chapter 17, this is where Jesus, we see the Lord's Supper in this section of Scripture and the other gospel accounts. But in John 13 through 17, we see John give us this amazing insight to the things that Jesus was teaching his followers in these three, uh, four or five chapters. It's incredible. There's so much depth of just uh, the teaching. And we're going to look at a few of these things as we go through these chapters. We're just going to kind of skim most of them. But there's three things I want to look at here in a second. But before we do that, I went through these chapters, and these aren't, by any means inclusive, but I just pulled out some things that you could see that Jesus was teaching and reminding his followers, not just his disciples in the room, but for us today. And so you start in chapter 13, you see this call to serve. You see a command to love. You see a promise of the coming Holy Spirit. You see how Jesus chose us and he cleanses us. You see his coming death and resurrection. You see his commissioning of his disciples and us as well. And then the end of his prayer in chapter 17, you see his call to unity. What we're going to do today, and Robert's not going to go through any, all of those, but we're going to look at the first two together, the call to serve and his command to love. And at the end, we'll look at this, um, this call to unity. And when he's called to serve, Jesus doesn't just teach about serving. His whole life was a picture of it. He does this amazing thing, and you've probably heard this many times before, but it's true. When he comes and washes his disciples' feet, he does something that no one else in that room would have considered doing. None of them would have. It's one of the lowest things you could ever do in that society, is wash somebody's nasty feet. You know, back then, the dusty roads, there were dirt, there were sandals. So their feet were probably just filthy after walking through all that stuff. And Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, stoops down and washes everyone on their feet, including Judas, by the way. An act of incredible love and humility and servanthood. Now, they've been around Jesus for about three, three and a half years at this point, And they've heard all these teachings about loving others, about loving God the Father, about serving one another. It's amazing. Prior to this, by the way, before they get to the room, just a little bit before this, they're going to Capernaum. You know what they're arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? They still weren't there. So Jesus does something that's just unbelievable. The Bible says, I love it, in the first uh, part of 13, it says, It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come. For him to leave this world and go to the Father. Verse, at the end of verse 1, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He wanted to show them 
how much he loved them. He's going to do something he knew that none of them would even think about or consider doing for someone else. And certainly something they didn't expect him to do for them. There's something we're going to, as we go through this, we'll see something here, hopefully pick up on, by way of contrast, a comparison between Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders that the disciples had kind of been around for their whole life. But this call to serve, and by the way, this servant leadership, serving others, Jesus set the perfect example in his humility. And so, look at this, though. He does this in, in, in uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 22 and verse 24. Right after the, he washes his disciples' feet, of all things, if you'll turn there, verse, chapter 22 and verse 24, look what happens with these guys who are in the room, right on the heels of this, according to Luke's gospel. It's chapter 22 and verse 24. It says, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. This wasn't one time. This happened multiple times to these guys. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. And so this is one of the last times he's going to have these guys. And so he's making the most of it. And these chapters from 13 to 17, we see some of the most amazing teachings that he gives to his disciples and to us about what it is to follow the Lord, to serve him, to serve others, and a call for unity in that whole process. Now, none of us can do that. None of us would even choose to do that. Even the disciples wouldn't choose to do this. But here they are in the room. They see the Son of God stoop down and wash their feet. And they still weren't quite getting it. I, wondered, I, I, thought, I thought about this as I was going through this. What, what do you, how do you do this? How do you argue this among yourself if you're the disciples? You know, how do you decide who's the greatest? What is, what's the reasoning? Well, I was chosen first. Well, you know, I was here when Jesus did that. Or I was here when Jesus did this. You know, I walked on water for a little bit, you know, if you're Peter. I mean, what was the what was the, the line of reasoning through that? So Jesus knows our heart. And so I just I, as we got to look at this, I want to look at Mark 10. This is right on the heels of John, James, and his mom asking him, you know, can you give us thrones on your left and thrones on your right? And I love this picture of Jesus. This is one of my favorite passages in Mark, in chapter 10 and verse 45. As, <laughs> you probably know it by heart. It says this. This is right after they approach him about who's the greatest. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What an awesome picture. Now when you come to this, chat, this section, John 13 through 17, as you go through it and take some time, I'd encourage you this week to take some time to go through it. And go through it and just see all, this, all the riches of what Jesus is teaching his disciples and us. Because think about this. This is almost like we've got an inside seat here to pull up a chair and listen to one of his meetings with his disciples. At the very end of this chapter, we have something that's unparalleled, in, I think, in Scripture. We have a prayer from our Savior for his, Himself, for His disciples, and for us. We have recorded in Scripture one of Jesus' prayers for us today, for the whole world, but also for us. And when we get there, I'm telling you, it's just when you go starting 13, you work your way through this, it's just amazing to see the heart of the Savior. And as you look through this, it's a, it's a good exercise to kind of look at this and kind of look at the scripture and say, you know, how do I line up in this area? As far as serving, what do, I, what do I understand about serving or serving or being humble? What does that even mean to me? Do I even understand what that means? His disciples didn't get this. That's why Jesus, no, he taught about it. He lived it. And he didn't just display it through washing our feet. His entire ministry was time and time again showing this over and over. You know, in John 15, if you turn a page over, Look what Jesus says here. And most of us are familiar with John chapter 15 with the, uh, the teaching about the vine and the branches. And rightly so. It's a great section. But look at verse 12. As Jesus picks up again 
throughout this entire section of talking about love and giving examples and, and displays of love. This is not just for disciples, but this is for us as well. My command is this, love each other, and this is the kicker. How? As I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. And listen to this. Greater love has no one than this. They lay down his life for his friends, which he's getting ready to do. But you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from the Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And this is my command. Love each other. You know, I wrote this down as I was looking at that passage of Scripture, thinking about this example of what it means, this call to serve, and this command to love one another. A person who truly loves will be willing to lay down their life for someone else, not lord it over them. You know, and you read this narrative, you see these disciples, really guys? You're going into this arguing about who's the greatest. He washes your feet, and you're still arguing about who's the greatest. Before we're too hard on them, let's kind of back up. I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of hopefully some background of what was going on in the culture of Israel at that time. For about three, well, probably about four or five hundred years, the Jewish religious leaders, ever since the Babylonian captivity, started um, these oral traditions because they wanted to preserve the purity of the Israel, of religion, the race, and all their customs so they wouldn't be blended in and just disappear. The intent was right. I think even early on, and probably even the desire was right. But after hundreds and hundreds of years, it just morphed into something that looked nothing like the heart of God. So by the time the disciples and Jesus was walking in his earthly ministry, their picture of a religious leader was of one of the Pharisees. And the guy at the time who was a high priest was named Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas had a father-in-law named Annas, if that's how you pronounce it. Annas was really considered a high priest, but Rome had deposed him around 86. He was a wicked individual. After him, he had five, at least five sons and probably one son-in-law, Caiaphas, at least that we know, who followed him as being high priest. All of them just as wicked as one another. Just to kind of show you what the religious leaders would operate, what they would do, we've often heard about the, the temple sacrifices or how they would do all the stuff they do around the temple precincts. You know one thing they would do? <laughs> These worshipers would come in with temple sacrifices. Now Caiaphas and his family, or Annas, his family, were kind of in charge of this whole deal. It's kind of like a modern-day mafia family. It's really how they were. They were hated. They were hated by the common Jews. Absolutely hated. Rome's the only reason they were alive until AD 70. But anyway, and so somebody would bring in a sacrifice and they want to offer it. And they, of course, the priests were supposed to examine it, right? Make sure it was without blemish. You know what they would do? Oh, this isn't worthy. You need to buy one from the temple, of course, at a premium. Make them charge more for it. Then they take the one away. They said, was any good? You know what they do? Sell it to the guy down the road as the one that was worthy. This is just one of many things these guys would do. They were wicked to the core. And so this was kind of the, the, Israel, the, the disciples' mindset, understanding of what a religious leader looked and acted like. Of course, Jesus was nothing like this. And so they, they kind of stumbled over this a little bit from time to time. And so the religious leaders, I wrote this down as I got to thinking about the kind of, by way of uh, comparison and by way of contrast, the religious leaders were profiting from the sacrifices Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. They only took, but he gave, and he gave everything. And so I got to thinking, you know, this had to be a, a, just an amazing time for disciples to see the Messiah, to be around the Son of God and say, he's nothing like our religious leaders. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine? 
I mean, these guys were just, they've led the people astray for so many years. I wrote this about him. This is kind of how I, this is kind of summed up a Pharisee in the, the, Jesus' day and that the disciples and Jesus had to deal with on a regular basis. They were list takers and rule makers. I like their list. All right, Jesus, your disciples aren't doing this. Why is that? You know, they come up with a list of things they think is right and wrong. Then they make rules to kind of force everybody to kind of come along. They've been doing it for four and five hundred years. So by the time that Jesus was walking on the earth, there was the law that they gave through Moses and all the commandments he'd given them. And they added about over 600 more ridiculous things that had nothing to do and oftentimes would contradict the heart of God that he was real to them through the scriptures. And so this is kind of the things that these, the mindset that kind of polluted the thinking around the religious culture in the, in the Israel at this time. And so, look what Jesus said to them one time. They've gotten so bad at perverted the law. Jesus, in part of his condemnation, the religious leaders said this. You diligently study the scriptures. Because you think by them, you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. But you refuse to come to me to have life. That's in John 5. In another place, Matthew 15, look what he says here. This is, uh, I love this passage in Matthew. You see the heart of the Savior through this. Because he's, 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 he's correcting, rebuking. Look what he's, he's teaching us so much through this about what's on his heart. This is Matthew 15 and verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers, this is another example, by the way, of some of the things the Pharisees would do. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, did you catch the, the, the first part of that? They didn't break the law of Moses. They didn't break any of the commands. They broke the tradition of the elders. Now, what they, later on, they called that the Mishnah. They had this oral tradition handed down after hundreds and hundreds of years. And so these religious guys just kept coming up with more and more traditions. No one could even remember them all, much less keep them all. And so they find one. They're looking at oh, their list. Oh, they're not doing that. Let's go after that. So they come to Jesus. Again, nothing they'd done that contract, uh, was contrary to Scripture. Nothing like that. They broke the tradition of the elders. I love what Jesus replied. Jesus always takes, takes us back to the heart of the Father. And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise receive from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Listen, this is a very condemning part here. He quotes from Isaiah, and he's saying this on these guys here. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. I love it. When you go to the Gospels, time and time again, you see Jesus reorienting his disciples and us to the heart of the Father. It's so easy for not careful to kind of get sidetracked over here or there. But Jesus is constantly taking these guys, he's bringing them back to the heart of the Father. And so, look at this. This is... Uh, 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 at this point, uh, after reading Matthew 15, I, I, kind of, I was looking at this. I thought, you know. Now, by the way, after centuries of this stuff, you can understand why the, the leaders did not uh, recognize the Savior. And the people, even including disciples, had a, had a little bit of a difficult time as well. But they got it. They eventually got it. And which is a, a beautiful thing. Because at the beginning, when Jesus met these guys, I love we see his picture. When he starts off with disciples, they're just a ragtag group of guys. I mean, they, they're an eclectic group of people. They're from all backgrounds. They're probably, if you had a list of people you're going to choose to be your 12, none of them would have made the list. That's who Jesus saw because he wasn't looking at the outward things. He was looking at the heart. Because he knew these guys 
would come back and they would eleven of them. He knew the one was going to betray him, but he knew the eleven were going to get it, and they did. And then God used them to change the whole world with the gospel. It's an awesome thing. But at this point in time and history, when Jesus is teaching, we come to John chapter thirteen, and we're getting ready. What's going on in the life of a of a of the Savior and the, and the apostles of this time? There's <laughs> kind of two worlds colliding, if you will. You've got the old and the new. You know, you've got the old covenant now being beaten up with the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. You've got light and dark colliding. You've got the light being Jesus Christ, the light that came into the world, colliding with the darkness of the Jewish leaders and the religious system, their corrupt religious system they created. It was completely turned people away from the Father. And also you have the revelation of the Messiah, and you have the rejection of him. So this kind of, all this has happened at one time. So the disciples here, this upper room, Jesus takes some time here. He does this amazing job of chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 to walk him through what's most important to him. How to serve him, how to follow him, and how to lead and love others. And he gives us at the very end in his prayer, he shows us how that's done. One of the key aspects of that. Um, he, uh, let's look at John 17. Let's, uh, we'll, we'll go there real fast. Look, at this, this is Jesus' prayer. And this is one of the most amazing prayers, I think, in all the scriptures. Certainly one of my favorites. And when you read this, and when you come to this prayer, you realize, you know, <laughs> the, the Savior is just doing an amazing job of walking these guys, meeting them where they're at. You know, they got to arguing again about who's the greatest. He doesn't beat them up over it. He redirects them. He does it even in a heart of love. You're talking about an amazing amount of patience. When I look at this, too, I get encouraged. You know what? Lord, I'm just like these guys. Man, there's times that you show me something, I'll turn around, I'll just miss it again, or I'll just, I'll bomb, or I'll just, somehow I just won't apply that to my life like I should, as fast as I should, probably. But we get here, look how Jesus prays for us. He prays for, first he prays for himself, and he prays for his disciples, and we're going to look how he prays for us and all believers. Verse 1, chapter 17. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them. Excuse me. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave them. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled. I am come to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone, 
But also, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Here's where he starts praying for all believers, including us. Listen, when he, listen to how he prays for us, by the way. This is critical in the life of a believer. And I believe in the church today. Something that we sorely need to get our minds around, our hearts around, and we need to start understanding in maybe ways we haven't uh, in a long time. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me and have, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And he closes, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And this prayer brings us to this last point. This is where we want to get to today. This is call for unity amongst his followers and his disciples. His disciples just get through arguing about who's the greatest again. And so as he ends this discourse, he closes with his powerful prayer and his prayer for unity. And he talks about how him and the Father are one. Do you ever think there's a time where God the Father says, you know what, I think I'm going to be doing this over here. And God the Son says, I think I'm going to be doing this over here. No, of course not. Never. But sometimes, if we're not careful, disciples, we see disciples kind of acting that way. Well, I must be on your right side. So-and-so must be on your left side because I'm certainly greater than that guy. Really? Or, you know, my ministry is over here. I mean, we just, we, if we're not careful, we'll be in a situation like Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians. Paul gets to the church at Corinth who is gifted, but they're, they're so divided over the wrong things. The only thing that divides us is the wrong thing. But they weren't united over the right thing. The only thing that unites us, by the way, as we see through this prayer and through this entire discourse, is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. Period. Nothing unites us. Nothing holds us together. Nothing keeps us together. Nothing even would call us to even want to serve one another like Jesus served us and like he served them through the washing of his feet, of their feet. None of us have that in us. Jesus Christ is the only thing that unites us. When Paul gets to Corinth, you'll recall, he gets there and you got this group, and you can just almost see it. Well, I follow, um, you know, I follow Paulus. Well, if you see the next guy one up at him, well, I follow Paul. The next guy's like, well, hey, I follow Peter. Okay, this is guy. This is one of the twelve. And finally, says, well, hey, I one up there. I follow Jesus. It was ridiculous. Paul gets there. You know, what Paul's response to that was, "Who's Paul? Who's 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 Peter? Who's, who are any of these guys?" Paul knew better than anything. If we take something, a person, their teaching, or any type of teaching, or anything, anything at all, and put that and elevate that equal or above the gospel of Jesus Christ, man, that brings nothing but division. It does nothing but hinder the work of the gospel, at least in our lives, of being affected, being used by God. And it, it creates division. And Christ is not divided, is He? Is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ever divided on anything? That's why when the Lord goes to this entire section of Scripture here, time and time again, you see Him, this call to be one. John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me, and I and you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's, he's specific all the way through this entire narrative. Time and time again, He brings them back to the main thing. You have to be in me 
I have to be in you if this is gonna if you have any hope of being about what I'm about. There's so, but who's the greatest? Well, well, well that's not the point. <laughs> we all know who the greatest is. It's our Savior. Think about Jesus, who didn't consider quality of God something to be grasped, but became a servant, took the form of a servant. Can you imagine he took the form of us? And we think that's not that big a deal. But that's awful. You can, if we ever got a glimpse of his glory and he chose to look like one of us and to live like one of us, I don't think our minds can really get around just how low he sunk to do that. It'd be like you or I going to, living in the ground being taken the form of an earthworm or something. Something nasty. That would even be a close comparison, by the way. That wouldn't even be close. But he did that for you and me. And he did it in such a humble and a loving fashion. And so, well, it's so cool. These 11 weren't getting it yet. But you know when they got it? After Pentecost, they get the Holy Spirit. And you start seeing these guys. <laughs> By the time, one, it's almost like one after another, they start getting martyred. Or they, if they, like John, they get to live out a full life. They go to their grave, faithful stewards of the gospel. At some point, they started, Jesus said, I'll come back and I'll remind you of all things. And they look back and they start reflecting back and like going, you know, that's right. Peter, just shortly after this, man, at Pentecost, he preaches boldly. And thousands of people get saved. This is the same guy who denied him three times. Peter got it. He said, you know what? I don't care what they do to me. I'm going to preach Jesus. And it wasn't Peter doing it. Because if Peter, if Peter had been doing it, he'd done what he did on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. He'd been running and hiding. That was Peter. Jesus in Peter was at Pentecost. Now as a church of the Most High God, where does that leave us? You know, as I looked, looked at it, I was reflecting in my life. I thought, you know, do I have a servant's heart like that? Am I willing to wash somebody else's feet? Whatever that may mean? Or is that somebody else's job? It's, you know, I've kind of did my time. That's somebody else's job. I was in a church one time and my dad used to crack me up. After a fellowship or whatever we do, it's like we were just farmed out, me and my brothers. Looking back, I appreciate that now. I learned a lot through that. But I remember one day we were picking these tables and this guy walked by and my dad made a joke at him. He was like, the table's not going to pick itself up. You know, this is somebody he knew real well. And he goes, oh. He actually, and this guy said this. I'll never forget it. I was like 16 at the time. And it, this made a mark on me as a young man. He says, oh, that's for the younger people. I've done my time. I mean, I went to my dad and said, why would he say something like that? My dad didn't say anything. He just he let it go. I went, and I, I went to, that bothered me for some reason. I went to the Lord. I said, Lord, why, why is that bothering me? You know what the Lord spoke to me in that moment? Because I've been complaining and whining up to this point about picking up tables. The Lord said, because that's not my heart. And if you're not careful, you're going to end up there. And I thought, oh. that, that did. I made a huge impact on me. I thought, thank you, Lord, that I can learn it this way as opposed to ending up in a place that I don't want to be. And we never plan on being. But if we're not careful, if we have that kind of servant's heart, we'll get there. Don't wash my feet. I'm not washing your feet. Was that the kind of servant hearts I have? That's something we all, I'm sure, till the day we die, will have to work on. Well, that second one was, do I love others as Jesus loved me? <laughs> as he loved me. That's the hard one. It's, it's easy to love people who are like us, who agree with us, who do things like we do, or, or think like I do, or look like me, all the stuff. But to love someone as Jesus loved me, even when they're not real nice or kind, or maybe they're mean, or maybe they're just whatever, that's a little harder, isn't it? But here's the, here's the trick. I can't do that. And you can't do it either. On my own. It's the Holy Spirit in us. 
That's why we have to die to ourselves on a regular basis. You know, when Peter came, the Lord came to Peter and says, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. Like, no, don't wash my feet. And finally, Peter's like, okay, wash all of me. Jesus said something very significant there. He said, no, no. Who's clean? Does it need a bath? He's already had a bath. You're already clean. But he's washed his feet. If we're, as we walk through this world, we're going to get our feet are going to get dirty. There's going to be sin. There's going to be things we do. And from time to time, like we, Pastor Lindsay referred to earlier in 1 John 1, 9, we have to confess our sins. The Bible says we're faithful. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the picture of 1 John there. In that, in that narrative in John chapter 13, he's washed his disciples' feet. He's talking with Peter. That's a great picture of that. Peter was already clean because of Jesus. But he needed his feet to be washed because we'll get dirty because of sin, sinful attitudes, sinful actions, wrong thinking. Isn't that a great picture of that? And so, do I love like Jesus loved me? And I think about, you know, did Jesus love me? Literally, he loved me a lot. He loved me a lot. More than I deserve. And so that's a challenge we have to face on a regular basis. So when I'm interacting with somebody, whether it's a conflict or whether it's a, whatever the situation is, I always ask myself this, and I don't do a good job of this all the time, but just always go back and say, all right, Lord, this situation, my response, is it loving? Does it look like what I know from your scriptures? Does it look like what the Savior looks like? Or am I kind of acting like that one guy who wouldn't pick up a table? Because that's not love. And the last one, am I being obedient where God has sent me into the world? And that could be your, your neighborhood, your work, your school, your friendships God's given you. Uh, lost family members, where you shop, anywhere. Think about where you, your activities day in and day out, week after week, where God's placed you in the world. Are we being obedient? Here's the thing I, as I ask myself, ask myself this. Am I even in a position to be sent? Is my heart such that when God speaks to me, my answer is yes? Or am I kind of like conditional? Well, Lord... You meet these parameters, man. I'm good. I'm your man. Or do I have the attitude of yes? Even before I know the question? Even before I know the assignment? Because those are really irrelevant. It's just yes. And then Jesus can fill in the blanks when he's ready. Just then where that is, what that is, and everything else he wants to go with that. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, that's a work in progress for me. I'm sure it is for all of us. It's a big work in progress for me. But that's the desire of my heart is to be Yes. And also to be in a position to hear his voice. You know, if somebody was standing in the corner of this parking lot out here, and we were going to give them some instructions about whatever, and they were standing out there, they wouldn't be able to hear anything that was said in here, would they? And why is that? Because they would be not in a position to hear. If we're not careful in our walk, in our daily walk with the Lord, we'll get ourselves in positions where we can't hear his voice. We have no idea what's on his heart and mind. We might be like the Pharisees. We might be doing a bunch of quote, religious stuff. We might have a bunch of outward things going that we think are this and that. But we inter when the Savior interacts with us, are we pointing to the list? Oh, Jesus, I'm doing this. These guys aren't doing this. I'm doing this. Or are we in a position to hear His voice because we've been spending time with Him? We've been communing with Him on a regular basis. If this is the only time you're around God's Word, i got news for you. It's, it's a spiritual impossibility to grow as a believer, that God would have you to if you're not in the Word on your own throughout the week. This won't do it. It's not meant to. You know, I heard somebody say one time, well, you know, I'm driving to work. I, I, I used to be guilty of this. I'm driving to work. That's when I have my quiet time. I got a lot of time across my quiet time. You know what I call it? You, you know, I was, I, that was me for a long time. I had a 
45, 50 minute commute while I lived in Chattanooga and drove to Dalton for a number of years. And I kind of settled that. I went to season where that was, I said, that's my quiet time, Lord. Your God spoke to me. David, don't you think I'm a little bit more worthy of something better than your leftovers? I gave him leftovers. I was acting like that was some great, I had, God's got 45 minutes there and 45 minutes back. No. He told me, I'll never forget it. He said, you give me leftovers. Don't you think I deserve the very best of your time and of your day? I tell you, he revealed something in my heart at that time that I didn't realize was there. That's the thing about God. When God shows you what's in your heart, like Pastor Lee said, He doesn't show us all at once. He doesn't overwhelm us because He does it from a heart of love. When He shows us those things in our heart that really either break His heart or there are sins against Him or displease Him, He does it in such a way. Because the Bible says, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is very clear about this, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. He'll convict us, but he won't condemn us. So if you hear voices condemning you, whether it's wherever that's coming from or whoever that's coming from, you know right now the Lord didn't send that person. Or they're not speaking for the Lord. I've, I've, I actually tell somebody that. Lord didn't tell you, I know the Lord didn't send you to say that to me right now. What do you mean? I said, uh, because what you just said was, and I'm walking through, walking through scriptures, how the Lord treats his children. And that wasn't how they treat his, in that situation, that's how the Lord treated his children. If you're a child of the Most High God, ask yourself, am I in a position to even hear what my Savior has to say to me right now? Do I spend time with Him? Do I give Him the very best of my time? Or is He kind of getting my leftovers? Do I serve like He serves? Do I even understand what that means? I don't know if I even understand what that means for me. Do I love like He loves? That's, that's hard. If you love like He loves, you'll live like He lived. Because He'll be living in you. He'll be, all the things he does you'll be like the Peter before Pentecost to the Peter after Pentecost it'll be a world of difference because it'll be Jesus and so as we close I just want to close with this thought and these questions ask yourself this go through, I would encourage you this week as a homework assignment maybe go through John chapter 13 through uh, 17 just kind of read through that and see what God would show you for yourself and for, maybe for your family what God would have to speak to you through this time and ask yourself, do I, have a, do I have a servant's heart like Jesus does? And he displays in this passage. Do I love like Jesus loved? Do I really love? Am I willing to lay down my life for someone else? My rights? That's a hard one. Am I only going to love those who just agree with me or think like me or do what I do or whatever? And am I being obedient where God has sent me? And I think with that, am I even in a position to be sent? And if you're not, Ask the Lord to show you that. Or if you're not sure, ask Him. He will tell you. The Bible says if you draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you. That's the beauty of our... That's one of the most beautiful things about our Savior. He's not some mean ogre up there saying, Oh, Dave, you messed up, so you're going to do this, this, and this to get back with me. He knows that we're but dust. He remembers how we're formed. Think about that. And when He comes, He comes from a heart of love. He will, he will, he will correct. He will discipline. But it's always, discipline is a form of love. He doesn't do it because he's angry and he wants to just, out of spite or just to get you. He does it because he loves us enough. He wants to redirect us and reorient us to himself. Everything is about that in the Christian life when it comes to the Father. He's always trying to point us back to himself and reorient us to his ways, to his thinking and his will. I said, well, I love that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why is that? Because we've been set free. Where, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There should be joy. There should be a unity. 
We could be in, if you look around the room, there are so many different people in this room who come from a number of backgrounds, a number of different testimonies. Some got saved early, some got saved late. Some people have all, you name it, all sorts of different backgrounds in their testimonies. Some have different likes and dislikes. You name it. Some can break dance like me. Some can't. That's okay. I'm joking. I can't dance. But um, we have all these differences. Think about the wisdom and the, the power of God. He takes all that diversity. And he knows, left to ourselves, we'd be a mess. Just like the church at Corinth was when Paul got there. We had to come back and visit through the letters. He's like, well, guys, what's going on here? only thing that will unite us with all this diversity is the gospel. And that awesome thought. We don't have to agree on everything. Except one thing, that's the gospel. We could choose to disagree. I had somebody tell me one time, <laughs> I didn't really receive it very well at first because of the situation it was around. They told me I was in a disagreement with somebody. I said, well, you can disagree. Uh, that's not the problem. But how you disagree is the problem in the body of Christ. I thought, oh. At the time, I didn't want to hear that because I disagreed in the wrong way. But you don't learn through that. You know what? I did. I was in sin. I had to go back and make that right. I still disagreed, but I had to, I had to walk through that in a, in, a, in a biblical way instead of the way I did the first time. So God's not asking for uh, conformity to like, we're not being united with each other. We're united to Him. If you ever see somebody trying to unite everybody to them or their cause like the Pharisees were, man, we know we stay away from that. The only thing we're drawn to, the only thing we should unite around is the gospel. Period. And God will do everything. Everything comes and everything rises and falls with that. Period. 